Hello, and welcome back to Hidden Animals. This is episode four, and today's story is the title story in the collection, Ripples. It occurred to me after recording the first few episodes that I didn't actually introduce myself. I guess I didn't really think it mattered, but in any case, I'm Andrew St. John. I'm an English teacher of about 18 years in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And I guess that's all that really matters. Anyway, here is the fourth story in the Ripples collection. This one is Ripples. My father always blamed Lucy, my older sister. Dad had instructed her to watch over me and my twin brother, but we were notoriously difficult to supervise. She always resented being stuck with us. I can't say I blame her. Grant and I made it our mission to sneak away from her at every opportunity. Still, it really wasn't her fault what happened to Grant. It was mine. I've just never had the courage to tell anyone the truth. Every year when we were kids, Dad took the three of us camping. We'd spend a week during the summer in the Ozarks, set up right next to the river, fishing, canoeing, exploring. For me and Grant, it was heaven. Lucy? Well, she hated it. Hated every minute of it. The last year we went, when Grant and I were ten, I snuck away early one morning to do some solo exploring. I found this pond almost a mile away from our camp that was nearly invisible through the thick growth around it. It was kind of a teardrop shape with a large granite outcropping that jutted out just over the surface of the water above the tapered end. I grabbed a handful of pebbles and climbed up onto the enormous stone. I tried to skip them but failed miserably. After that, I settled for trying to find the deepest spot by tossing one at a time and listening to each ploop. Later that day, I brought Grant back to see my discovery. We sat on the edge of that huge stone and watched the fish dart back and forth for a long time. Water striders skimmed along the surface and dragged tiny trails of wake behind them. Dragonflies zipped around and lit on the ends of the tall weeds that grew thick along the waterline. It was really beautiful. As I collected more rocks, Grant insisted on inspecting each one. He had recently taken an interest in geology, largely because he had discovered our father's old rock tumbler in the garage. When he decided that I had found nothing of interest, he gave them back and struck out to look for more valuable minerals. I resumed lobbing one rock after another and watching the concentric circles chase each other. It eventually dawned on me what I found so beguiling about something so mundane. No matter where the rock landed, as long as it was thrown hard enough, the perfectly circular ripples always managed to reach every inch of the water's irregular edge. If I wanted to disturb a butterfly perched on one bank, I could hit the water on the opposite side and watch the waves send it flying away. If I wanted to produce chaos across the entire surface, I could toss a handful of stones in the middle. If I wanted the entire ecosystem to reach equilibrium, I could simply sit still and wait. Grant came back empty-handed, and I had run out of ammunition. We poked around the edge looking for whatever wildlife we could find until we surprised a water snake curled up on a fallen log. Its gray body slid into the pond and disappeared from sight in one quick motion, which sent us scurrying back to the campsite. 
We both pretended we weren't scared, but neither of us was very convincing to the other. For the next couple of days, any spare moment we could steal was spent navigating back to the pond and wandering along the bank looking for any sort of artifact that would excite the imagination of a couple of ten-year-old boys. We figured there had to be any number of arrowheads or musket balls or Civil War bayonets just under the surface of the weeds and the mud. What we found were a few discarded Coke bottles and beer cans and a lot of disappointment. It was along the trail we had been slowly taming that Grant made a truly remarkable discovery. We didn't know it at the time, but it would eventually change everything. On the third or fourth day, he stopped suddenly and squatted down by the edge of the path en route to the pond. He held up a jagged piece of what seemed to be charcoal, only it was hard and glossy. It was like nothing else we had seen on any previous expedition. He declared that it was obsidian, and insisted that it was extremely rare in that particular area. Indeed, when we returned to the campsite and showed our father, he was stunned and impressed. When we told him where we found it, however, I accidentally let slip the secret of the hidden pond. His eyes flashed with what I thought must be anger at first, but his terse response belied fear. Don't go there again. It's too dangerous. That was all he said. Using our collective imagination, we conjured up a dozen various possibilities for the mortal threats he could have had in mind. Mass murderers, rabid bears, everything but the obvious one. The next time we were able to sneak away, we went straight for the Forbidden Pond. It was familiar territory, but now it held an all-new thrill for us. Grant and I approached with all the stealth we could, watching with vigilant eyes for any sign of dangerous creatures or psychotic kidnappers. Like our earlier attempts to find historically significant treasures, the careful search proved to be a failure. After exhausting all possibilities for adventure, I lay on my back on the warm granite and watched the clouds sweep over the clearing. Grant opted to climb a pine tree that leaned precariously outward over the water. He shimmied up the trunk with surprising ease until he reached a limb that he could pull himself over and sit on. I yelled for him to be careful, but this only prompted him to slide farther out. I can still see the foolish grin on his face. I repeated my warning, trying very hard to sound as casual as possible to prevent him from taking any further unnecessary risk. Nevertheless, he inched his way a little closer to the edge until the sagging branch cracked. It didn't break right away, but his devilish grin vanished. For the first time ever, I saw terror in my brother's face. He sat really still for a moment, then began to scoot back toward the trunk of the tree. The next crack was followed by a sudden downward motion as the branch began to give way. Grant fell backward, but somehow managed to hold on with one hand as the backs of his knees instinctively curled around the branch as well. He struggled to right himself. The thick clump of green needles on the end of the limb slapped down onto the water, and I thought he would be next. Instead, the supple pine split only halfway through, causing Grant and the bow to swing toward the trunk just close enough for him to land safely, albeit awkwardly, on solid ground. I realized then that I had not moved since before the whole ordeal began. Though he had only faced a drop of about five or six feet into water that he could probably stand up in, I had been utterly paralyzed by fear. Had he been in any real danger, I suppose I would have watched him die before my eyes in a state of immobile panic. 
This realization sprouted a kind of shame that I could never quite uproot. It grew and bore its rotten fruit over and over again throughout the remainder of my childhood and burrowed deep into my adult psyche. Though it lay dormant for months or even years at a time, it would occasionally shoot up into full maturity in a matter of seconds, usually at the worst possible moments. After lying on the ground a few seconds, Grant breathed a few relieved sighs and began giggling uncontrollably. I watched him stand and brush off the dirt and pine needles clinging to his jeans. My first impulse was to scream at him, but what came out was laughter. Somehow our twin brains had reconvened, and we roared in unison. We stopped only when we heard our father's acrid voice behind us. Get your butts back to your tent, he said. Now! He and Lucy had followed our path after realizing we disappeared again, and whatever anger had seeded his earlier warning was now in full bloom. Grant dropped his chin to his chest and marched forward in resolved silence, preparing for what he assumed was going to be certain death. I followed him with my eyes glued to his heels. No one spoke the entire way back to the campsite, but Lucy's smug grin practically echoed around us. That night, rather than wearing us out with a switch, our dad struck us with a blow far more painful than any we could have imagined. Go and pack up everything except what you're wearing. We're leaving in the morning. You two cannot be trusted. I remember our mouths hanging open. No protest, no pleas for mercy or understanding. We burned with indignation and childlike fury, not realizing that those feelings were just easier substitutes for remorse. Later, while we sat sulking in our tent and stoking the embers in our hearts, I thought briefly of plotting some elaborate and humble apology. After all, if our father could see that we were indeed very sorry for what we had done, and that we could really be trusted, he might retract his terrible sentence. However, Grant's quiet sniffling rekindled my anger and I discarded the idea. The following morning, while Dad was getting everything packed up, he asked Lucy to keep an eye on us so he could get all of our supplies into the station wagon without interruption. She rolled her eyes and mumbled some sort of agreement. Under ordinary circumstances, we would have immediately schemed an escape, but we simply sat by the edge of the river and picked at the moss growing nearby. Grant's voice finally broke the silence. He told me, this is all your fault. I said, what? I guess my confusion upset him further. He snapped. You heard me. This is all your fault. What's my fault? I asked. He glared with his steely eyes and said, everything's stupid. We're leaving and probably never coming back because of you. You and that stupid pond. I responded with, who's stupid? You went with me. I didn't make you go. This didn't make any difference. He maintained my guilt. Yeah, but you found it. If you hadn't gone there in the first place, we never would have gotten in trouble. He folded his arms across his chest, and his eyes smoldered with genuine resentment. I'll never forget that hateful glare. Everything about his posture, facial expression, and tone of voice exuded a confidence that could only exist behind bulletproof logic. My culpability was a rational and moral certainty from which I could never recover. Still, I tried one last time. We didn't get in trouble because I found it. We got in trouble because we went back after Dad said not to. This isn't my fault. I hate you and I wish you were dead, he declared. And with that, he sealed himself up in his stubbornness and ignored all my attempts to defend myself. 
He pulled the hunk of obsidian from his pocket, pretending to inspect it as a signal that he was done listening to me. Where I had initially felt sadness that my twin brother had basically renounced me, I now felt rage. It was an entirely new sensation for me, a blissful pain that burned in my chest and behind my eyes. In place of my usually gentle nature, I found a desire to hurt Grant the way he hurt me. No, worse. I wanted to destroy some part of him that he couldn't get back. I was bigger and stronger, but a physical beating was too temporary. Without a word, I stood up and loomed over him like I was about to pummel him. His shoulders slumped a little, almost imperceptibly, but not quite. He feigned disinterest and kept turning that black lump over and over in front of his face. When I reached out to snatch it, he flinched, trying to avoid a blow that was never coming. Before he even knew I had his precious rock, I was already plunging into the opening in the trees that led to the pond. In my haste, I failed to notice that Lucy had entered her tent to change clothes, and Dad's head was buried in the back of the station wagon. Neither of them saw me or Grant leave the safety of the riverbank. I ran through the woods with ease, twisting and turning without even having to think about where I was going. My head start and slightly longer legs meant that by the time my brother caught up to me, I was standing on the granite days with my most sadistic smile. He was about to demand that I return the rock to him, but he fell silent when he saw the rippling movement of the water behind me. Tears pooled in his eyes. There was no anger at all, just grief, like his best friend in the world had died. I had expected to feel something in that moment, some kind of resolution to the hatefulness that had compelled my cruelty. I wanted to feel victorious, but the look of agony on his face turned all my rage into regret. The awful irony was that I had succeeded beyond my expectation. I remember saying to him, Hey, I'm sorry. Look, I didn't... But I never finished that sentence. Even to this day, I've never spoken the last few words. It was too late. Grant had bolted up the inclined stone past me and jumped blindly into the murky water. His aim was true. He landed squarely in the spot where I had broken the stillness of the pond only moments before. I shouted for him, but I choked on his name and did nothing but watch the enormous rings of water pulsing from the center of his dive. I watched as the surface of that pond slowly returned to its flat, calm state. It was like I had become part of the granite fixture under my feet. I stood with my eyes fixed on the glassy water, waiting for Grant to surface, waiting for my brother to be okay. I still don't know how long it took for Dad and Lucy to arrive in the clearing, how long I had stood there looking stupidly at the water. Their initial questions had no effect on me at all. Where is Grant? Did he go in the water? Where is he? What finally broke the spell was watching my father's body hit the water which sent the reflection of the sky and trees into a wobbling frenzy. He disappeared into the darkness and resurfaced every so often. Again and again he dove, rising for air, then back down again. I finally heard Lucy's panicked voice. David, what happened? I could only answer in clips and fragments. I don't know. I didn't hear the splash. I looked for him, but I don't know. I'd like to think that the lies were unconscious, that I didn't really know what I was saying. But I knew. When my father pulled Grant's body from the water, his right arm was covered up to the elbow with slick black mud. Later, he said the arm was wedged underneath a fallen tree trunk six feet below the surface, 
like he was digging around underneath it and had gotten stuck. No one had any explanation for it, no way to guess what he could have been searching for. I never told them what I did. I never told them what he said to me, or that I pretended to throw his rock in the water. I never told them that it was in my pocket the whole time. I never told them anything. I couldn't. At first, it was panic. I lied because I didn't know what would happen to me. Over time, the lie turned to stone. It became the truth to everyone else, and I couldn't undo it. If I ever told them the truth, it would be like digging up his body and killing him again in front of them. If I ever told the truth, I would have to admit that I murdered him, and that I did it for spite. But I did. I murdered Grant. In a stupid, blind fit of childish rage, I threw him into six feet of cold, muddy water and drowned him. It took a long time for me to understand that I hadn't just killed my brother. I had thrown a grenade right in the middle of my family, and every one of us took some shrapnel. We were all still alive, but none of us really survived. We all stopped going to church. Sundays just didn't feel holy anymore. I wrapped myself in secrecy and denial. Dad threw himself into his work. Mom grieved herself into an alcoholic haze. Lucy lost herself in a string of boyfriends. Lucy. Like I said, my father blamed her. He tolerated her presence, but I don't remember ever seeing him speak to her again. He piled his guilt on top of her own and suffocated her. When she finally left for college, she disappeared into the world and never returned. Every now and then, I would see a letter from her in Mom's desk drawer. I never read them. I've never told anyone this story, not even my wife. I probably should have, but it's too late for that. Sometimes I think a secret is like a rotten tooth. You can hide it for a while, maybe for a long time, but it'll eventually begin to poison you from the inside. It's like the truth wants to get out, and if it doesn't, it will kill you. Maybe that's why I'm telling you all this. I don't know. It's like I've carried this thing around for so long that I didn't know how to let go of it. But I have to. I can't hold on to it anymore. After all these years, I guess I just needed to tell the truth to someone. To anyone. So I can finally put it down. <laughs> As a parent, there's obviously nothing worse than than facing the loss of a child, and it's just absolutely devastating. Uh, you know, I've known people who've gone through this, and it is just such a heartbreaking situation. There's there's no peace, there's no comfort. Uh, nothing you can say is ever going to bring them out of this this grief. And so, to write a story like this as a parent, it was not easy. You know, I, I knew where I was going with this from the beginning. I knew that Grant was going to die. That's kind of what the whole story was about. Uh, and I had to choose how he was going to die and do that in such a way that would support the narrative, that would uh, be reasonable given the plot and the setting, and would also maybe carry some kind of symbolic meaning. Uh, and since the the collection is called Ripples, uh, I wanted this to be the central story in this collection because Grant's death is symbolic of, of setting events into action that have these terrible consequences that kind of, well, ripple outward. And it was, it was 
not it was not fun. It was not fun to, you know, imagine the death of a child and and I certainly would never wish this on anyone, but it it kind of had to happen for this story and, you know, so it was necessary to kind of provide a certain foundation for this collection that I thought was very important. And I, I do remember early on that I had this sort of image of a David and Goliath kind of thing. And I was going to make the David and Grant characters, you know, very different in some way that, you know, Grant was supposed to be much larger, much stronger, much faster, whatever. Uh, and that David was somehow going to survive an accident or David even though he was smaller and weaker, would outlive his brother. And I kind of, I got away from that because I wanted this to be more about, I actually wanted them to be on more equal footing um, because it wasn't about size or strength or anything like that, even though there's some, some very slight references to it. I wanted the situation to be based on something almost out of anyone's control. So even though David makes the decision to pretend to throw Grant's rock in the water, which causes Grant to jump in, David doesn't mean for him to do that. He's just a 10-year-old boy being mean. Uh, he's just being mean to his, his twin brother because his brother was mean to him. Uh, and that's just how children act. So the point is very clearly that sometimes we make choices that have these far-reaching consequences that we never could have imagined. You know, it, it seems like such an innocent little prank. But of course, it absolutely uh, has these devastating results for the entire family. Um, and so that was kind of where uh, the story came from, was this seemingly innocent choice having these just horrible, long-lasting consequences because, well, that's what happens in life sometimes. We make choices that we don't realize are going to have these outcomes, but they do. And that's one of the underlying themes of the whole collection is the nature of consequences and how sometimes we can certainly anticipate those consequences and sometimes we can't, but we just have to do what we think is right at the time. Uh, this is also the only story in the collection that is told from the first person point of view. And there's there is a specific reason for that. But I, I wanted this to be told from the perspective of David as an adult, looking back on the memory of what happened to his brother and the guilt that he carries uh, and the shame that he carries because of what happened. You know, if David is telling the story at the same time that it happens, or even a few years down the road, as a child, he's not going to have this perspective developed. He's not going to have this perspective of being able to look back on this with an adult sense of maturity and responsibility. And that's really what I wanted because I wanted to have that sort of reflective view of this um, where he's not just telling the story of what happens, but he's giving an account of why things happen the way they did and why he feels the way he does. And so the first person point of view is the only real way to do that and to get into his head and allow him to tell the story to us so that we get to feel what he feels. We get to experience the story as he experienced it, but it's not the true experience because this is, again, this is an adult remembering something that happened decades earlier in his childhood. And so it's not a perfect account of the events that happened, but it shows us where David is now and, and what kind of life he's probably living now as a result of what happened to him and what happened to Grant when they were 10 years old. As terrible and, and tragic and traumatic as the story was, I hope you enjoyed it for what it was. Thank you very much for joining me this time. Come back again next week when I read the next story in the collection, which is called Ants. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can share on social media. You can review the podcast on whatever service you're using, like Spotify or Apple or Google. You can email me with comments or questions, uh, andrew at hiddenanimalspodcast.com. If you'd like to donate directly, you can do so at the website hiddenanimalspodcast.com. I'm very grateful for all my supporters, and as always, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.